1 John 3, 1-7 See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who is thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or, has, or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Second reading is Luke 24, verses 26 through 48. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were there with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, he has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. They were startled and frightened. And thought they saw a spirit, and he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. Late radio master storyteller and commentator Paul Harvey often, yes, often gets credit for a number of signature phrases in the tradecraft of radio. But he's maybe best known for his segments known as the rest of the story. For 33 years, six times a week, 
Paul Harvey would, as he put it, blend mystery and history and end his segment with the phrase, and now you know the rest of the story. While winning great accolades for his segments, neither Paul Harvey's voice nor Paul Harvey Jr., his son and producer of these segments, were the inventor of the format they used to such great effect. The format was invented and developed by a gifted Phi Beta Kappa student from Washington University in St. Louis, who went on to a career as a radio and television producer in Chicago. This producer is the one who gave us, at least in the Midwest, the 10 p.m. original standard time for late night news. This producer invented the prototype for the talk show format, both on radio and television. And she was the first woman who produced a nightly national newscast. Lynn Cooper was the first producer ever inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. Oh, and in 1941, she married an up-and-coming radio talent at KXOK in St. Louis named Paul Harvey. Behind great voices are great producers. Behind great men are greater and often quite surprised women. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> Our two readings this morning from Luke chapter 24 and from 1 John 3 are the biblical equivalent of the rest of the story as they communicate to us the possibilities that the resurrection presents for our lives. The Luke reading is an account of the encounter on the Emmaus Road and the commissioning that the risen Jesus gives his disciples in Luke's version of the gospel. What ties these two stories together is Luke's editorial comment in chapter 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Now, the disciples of Jesus may have been unschooled in the salons of Greek philosophy and unlearned in the strategies of Roman statecraft, but they knew their Torah. Most first century Palestinian Jews were literate. They heard Torah recited and psalms sung and wisdom and prophets declared in the synagogue Shabbat upon Shabbat. They knew their story. But the risen Jesus provides them with an understanding of that story. He defines it, provides context, helps the disciples realize what God's intention has always been. The disciples realized in those post-Easter encounters that Jesus was the rest of the story. God's mission since the garden had been to heal a broken creation and that had now come to pass on the cross and through the resurrection. 1 John 3, 1-7 unpacks the implications of the rest of the resurrection story in cosmic sweep and in everyday practical detail. In verses 1 through 3, John reminds the church, and remember, the church that John is writing to are a bunch of Christians who don't like each other. They're argumentative, 
They're, they're, they're clashing with each other about the very essence and nature of Jesus. They're fighting about the right thing, but make no mistake, they're fighting. He reminds this church that they are children of God. John makes no distinction. He doesn't pick a winner in the argument. He doesn't say part of you are children of God and part of you are schmucks. Uh, He leaves that up to the church to do that to themselves. He says, you're the children of God. Now, this is not some mere honorific title that John bestows to give them a warm fuzzy and a pat on the head. This is a cosmic realignment he's describing. Once we were strangers and orphans separated from the covenant. Paul explains that in Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 22. But now John makes it abundantly clear that we are God's children, part of the family, beloved, welcomed, enjoyed. I've got my two grandsons here today. I'm discovering how hard it is to pay attention to worship with grandsons hanging around. Because <laughs> I'm enjoying them. And God has welcomed us in the same way. Not because we're so deserving of welcome, because we've got our act together so wonderfully. Welcomes us because He loves us. He welcomes us because we're His. There's no earning of that. Jacob and Jackson didn't earn the title Jeff's grandkids. Not sure they'd want that if they really thought about it. They're just stuck with it. And we are just stuck with the title children of God. We are God's whether we like it or not. That's that's the point that John is making that has cosmic implications. The the cross and the resurrection have changed us from, from aliens and orphans and strangers to family, to beloved. And John declares that this act of adoption is then the source of our purity of life. We are not pure because we somehow seek to curry favor with God by our righteous obedience. We are pure because we strive to live in response to the great love that God has shown us. To the great love already demonstrated. In verses 4-7, through John moves from the cosmic implications of the totality of God's love to the particularity of of our discipleship. John defines sin, the Greek word harmatia, to miss the mark. He defines sin as lawlessness, as breaking faith with the Torah, as breaking faith with the covenant God has created. Sin, Sin isn't being naughty according to a bunch of laundry lists of rules. Sin is living in such a way that you've broken faith with the promise God has made. I will be your God and you will be my people. 
Sin, John says, is a state of what we might call Torahlessness, if we want to make up words. A state of being that doesn't pay attention to the scriptures. Discipleship, what we would call righteousness, what John calls righteousness, is discovered and lived out by means of us paying attention to the scriptures. The scriptures that the risen Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand. Jesus opens our minds, our lives, to understand God's missional story to heal broken creation. Jesus does this because God loves us so totally and so completely that God wants to tell us the rest of the story. In God's transparency, we discover the brokenness of creation And we discover that that broken creation is being repaired in the cross and the resurrection. And in knowing that story, we begin to discover how we ought to live in the world. Not as storyless, Torah-less people who have been left to their own devices to figure out how to make it in the world. But instead, we've been made children of God, welcomed into a healing and whole family of faithfulness, practicing a discipleship of relational shalom, of economic jubilee, and of personal and social holiness. And that's why we come to this table. That's why we come to this table so often. This is where our eyes are opened to remind ourselves in visual and in tactile ways and with the detail that we have a story, that we have a story that God desires us to know. No mysteries with this God, no hidden secrets, no no knowledge that's left for the smart people or the holy people to have. Just an amazing love, a transforming adoption, and a new way of living in hope. The resurrection happened, and it matters. We're two weeks out from Easter, and most of us are sort of ready to move on. Easter happened, good, let's, what's next on our to-do list? And, And really... What's next on our to-do list is to remember that the resurrection happened and that it matters. It tells us the rest of the story. God's vast, transforming, amazing, grace-filled love that draws us into a new way of life. We are not called to a discipleship of poutiness of, I have to obey what God says. We are called instead to live in the joyful presence of a Father who loves us totally and completely. Of His Son who offered His life for us, but didn't stay dead, who rose again, giving us the certainty that our lives 
have both potential here and eternal significance. And the Eucharist is that time when we remember that and we live as if the resurrection mattered. And now you know the rest of the story.